This is an RNZ podcast. This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. When New Zealand was in nationwide level four lockdown earlier this year, media company bosses warned that even some of the biggest names in our media might not survive as their income evaporated almost overnight. They pleaded for government help and some cut costs, salaries and jobs while also taking subsidies on offer for their remaining staff. But this week, two of New Zealand's biggest commercial media companies posted annual results that were much better than expected. We asked the boss of one of them, is the media's commercial crisis already over? Also, a talk show host warns darkly of a Stalinist slide in our economy. The government's going to end up owning everything. But first, 529 days after the worst terrorist attack New Zealand's ever seen, it was time for justice this week in Christchurch. You're listening to Morning Report. He'll never experience freedom again. The country's worst mass murderer, Brenton Tarrant, will never leave prison. His sentence of life without parole was greeted by the victims of the Christchurch mosque attacks with relief and tears. That was Morning Report on Friday, leading with the unprecedented sentence handed down in Christchurch for crimes unprecedented in this country. The front page of Christchurch's daily paper, The Press, that day had a stark two-word headline, Thank God. When it was all over in court on Thursday, the judge thanked the media for what he called dignified coverage of the sentencing. And some of the reporters in court that day had also had to report on the atrocity back on March the 15th last year. This week, they also had to tell the story of how Brenton Tarrant was held accountable for his crimes and confronted by his victims and their loved ones, as Hayden Donnell now reports. As the March 15 mosque gunman's court date approached, many people feared he would use his legal platform to preach hateful ideology. It had happened before. The Norwegian mass killer Anders Breivik used his 2012 trial as a pulpit for white supremacist dogma. At first, it seemed the Christchurch gunman had similar plans. He had sent his manifesto to political leaders and live-streamed his massacre on Facebook for maximum exposure. Media companies were wary of the killer using their outlets as a megaphone. The heads of TVNZ, RNZ, Stuff, MediaWorks and NZME all signed up to reporting guidelines aimed at limiting their coverage of statements or even hand gestures seen as championing white supremacist ideals. But worries persisted about what the gunman would say during sentencing, and they only grew more intense in July when he fired his lawyers and opted to defend himself in court. Though those concerns were justified, thankfully they didn't turn out to be realised. Throughout his four-day trial, the mosque gunman struck a mute, pathetic and at times almost peripheral figure. The spotlight was fixed instead on his victim's living family and the people who had survived his attack, as they spoke in often raw terms of the pain and loss his actions had inflicted. Ahad Nabi, whose father Haji Daoud Nabi was murdered at the Elnor Mosque, expressed anger. And coming back to this maggot, I would like to say that my 71-year-old dad would have broke you in half if you challenged him to a fight. But you are weak. A sheep with a wolf's jacket on for only 10 minutes of your whole life. A photo of Ahad Nabi giving the mosque gunman the fingers later went viral online. Sarah Qasem spoke about missing her murdered father Abdul Fattah's cooking, his laugh and most of all, his voice. I want to hear him tell me more about the olive trees in Palestine. 
I want to hear his voice. I want to hear my dad's voice. My Baba's voice. The last victim to address the court, Hamima Tuyan, also turned to the domestic and seemingly mundane as she tried to put her loss into words. I miss my husband's cooking, his lame dad jokes, you, you smirk, his light snores in the night, and a look that can calm me down. He was my imam, my bodyguard my entertainer, my problem solver, my comforter, my best friend, and the people in my community would like me to say, my Erturu. You put bullets into my husband and he fought death. 48 days, 18 surgeries, until his last breath. Those following the trial were struck by how the dignity and manner of the survivors stood in stark contrast to the man whose actions they were addressing. This is what Stuff's Charlie Mitchell had to say. It's worth remembering the terrorist planned to plead not guilty so he could gleefully spread his ideals through the media. Instead, he has been rendered silent, pitiful, faceless. A husk further hollowed with every word spoken by his living victims. After the terrorist was sentenced to life in prison without parole, those living victims sat mostly silent for a time. They eventually emerged from the courtroom into a crowd of supporters who had congregated to clap and sing Waiata. RNZ's Conan Young spoke to Jesse Mulligan from the gathering. They've started coming out now, um, a lot of the victims, those injured, uh, those who have lost loved ones. And uh, yeah, it was just incredibly emotional scenes as they came out and put their hands in the air and thanked everybody, yelled across the other side, said we are one. It was, uh, yeah, something else. Those scenes and the testimonies of the victims' families will likely be the enduring images from this week's trial. Rather than becoming a vehicle for white supremacist propaganda, it ended up amplifying the voices and stories of the people the March 15 gunman had tried to silence. This is a clip from Outside the Courtroom by Thomas Mead, who was one of the first reporters at the scene of the massacre. The people of Christchurch outside court as you stand, stand. to show their love as the sentence was handed down. They are rising above hate. In the end, journalists didn't have to deal with how to report responsibly on one man's hatred. Instead, they got to broadcast the righteous anger, resilience, compassion and ultimately love of a community. This is Elnor Moss Gamam Gamal Fuda speaking to media after justice was done. We represent love, compassion, Muslim and non-Muslim, people of faith and no faith. That is us, New Zealanders, and we are very proud that we are Muslims in New Zealand and will continue to serve this country and no punishment again is going to bring our loved ones back. Hayden Donnell reporting. 
Last Wednesday, before the sentencing concluded, we took a look at how conditions imposed by the court to minimise the risk of traumatising the victims even further influenced the reporting of what happened in court in Christchurch this week, and not just here, but all over the world. That was in this week's Midweek Media Watch on The Lately Show with Karen Hay here on RNZ National. If you missed it, it's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, and you'll also find it in our podcast feed. Just look for the title, Midweek Media Watch, Justice Seen to Be Done. Back in April, when the entire country was deep in Level 4 lockdown, the nation's media bosses fronted up to a special session of Parliament's Pandemic Response Committee. And those whose companies depended upon commercial revenue were in something of a state of shock and pleading for the government's help. More than one of them said that advertising revenue had fallen off a cliff and it was anyone's guess when or if things would pick up again. The media industry, of course, also had big problems before COVID-19 struck. A patient with pre-existing conditions was the finance minister's prognosis, and pundits and business analysts at that time were pondering the prospect of big names in news media falling over entirely. Media company NZME, which owns the Herald and half the country's radio stations, cut 250 jobs, Radio Sport and its community newspapers, and cut the pay of its staff to stay afloat. However, last Tuesday, NZME unveiled end-of-year financial results which were much better than expected. There was even something of a surge in people signing up for digital subscriptions, now paying for premium content online. And Chief Executive Michael Boggs told reporters that NZME will invest in further business journalism and in regional journalism, specifically in Wellington and Christchurch. And Michael Boggs even made this bold financial forecast. Based on uh, you know the trends that we're currently seeing, and as long as those continue into next year, we would expect to deliver profit growth for the next financial year. And shares in NZME, which were worth 30 cents before their results were unveiled, went up to 45 cents over the next 24 hours. Now, state-owned TVNZ also released its annual results the same day. TVNZ made an after-tax loss of $25.8 million, which was down from a $2.9 million profit the year before. But in spite of the ad revenue falling off a cliff in the final quarter, TVNZ's operating revenue was $311 million for the year, which was actually an increase on the financial year ending in June 2019. TVNZ ended this financial year with more than $52 million in the bank, which is $18 million more than this time last year. And last week, the Minister of Broadcasting, Communications and Digital Media, Chris Farfoy, told reporters that that second rescue package for the media never made it to Cabinet. We weren't able to reach consensus with our support partners, he said. And in any case, he said that the level of support needed has changed since lockdown, as media companies were doing better than expected. Uh, financial reports that are coming out today, um, some media companies have done better than expected, so it's, it's a bit of a balancing exercise too, to make sure that we support, um, but also being, um, you know, we're good custodians of taxpayers' money as well. Now after that, Chris Farfoy was also asked how he felt about media companies such as NZME, who'd taken the government's help and assistance and wage subsidies, but still made journalists redundant. Well, they made some of the decisions about sacking journalists uh, pre the wage subsidy being available, is my understanding. The likes of Radio Sport was done very early on in the piece and they said they were already going to do that. But a whole number of um, uh, companies 
uh, use the wage subsidy to support themselves. Um, at the end of the day, each company is going to have to answer for their own actions as to how they utilise that and uh, whether or not uh, they can face the public scrutiny of whether or not um, they've, used, um, they've run their business to make sure that they can justify accessing the wage subsidy and their other actions. But, um, as we know, um, every one of those media companies has faced challenges over the next six months and will probably continue to do for the next 12 months. TVNZ's annual accounts for the last financial year also reveal that there's $30 million of public money available to the business should conditions worsen substantially. So, is this media crisis actually over? A question for TVNZ's Chief Executive, Kevin Kenrick. Well, I think we're better prepared to confront what's going to come next. None of us have a crystal ball in terms of what the future is going to be and whether there's going to be future lockdown restrictions. But, you know, we are well better prepared to cope with that um, as and when that, that unfolds in the year ahead. In June, you responded with a change in business structure that uh, would result in um, something between 70 and 90 redundancies. At that time, you were saying TVNZ's revenue dropped 30% and you expected to uh, gradually recover momentum over the next 18 months. So has it all actually uh, happened a lot faster than you thought it would? You know, in the month of April, our advertising revenue dropped by 33%. And... In the month of May, it dropped by 27%. You know, so that you've then got a lot of cost that you need to pull out of a business to offset that sort of decline. We saw a recovery in June where the decline in revenue was 16%, so about half what we saw in the previous two months. That momentum, that positive recovery momentum, flowed through into July where we were getting single-digit declines in revenue. We were feeling pretty optimistic, pretty positive, and then all of a sudden we went into another lockdown phase. Yeah, but in terms of your revenue, it's roughly the same this financial year as the previous one. Um, I mean, did you need to go into that big restructure, lose those people um, in June? The the overall number looks relatively stable. What it masks is underneath that, there were some pretty dramatic differences between the first nine and the last three months. Well, you also referred to having um, there's around 50 or over $50 million in the bank. There's a, also the government saying $30 million if conditions worsen. Uh, you can draw on funding there. But, I mean, do you need it, that uh, safety net from the, the state? The absolute decline in advertising revenue in that fourth quarter was roughly $20 million. If you're going backwards at the rate of $20 million a quarter, you chew through $50 million worth of cash pretty quickly. However, we don't expect to draw down on that um, facility. It's, it's essentially there as a safety net. We are forecasting to manage the business within the cash reserves that we've got. Well, the Minister of Broadcasting said things are better than expected. Uh, no need for the second package, and in, in, in effect they couldn't get the coalition partners to agree on it anyway. But is he right? There is actually no need for a, a second kind of bailout rescue package? Well, I think it all comes down to what you believe the future is going to look like. If you imagine a situation where New Zealand goes back into multi-week or multi-month severe lockdown restrictions, I think that there will be challenges not just for the media industry, but for most industries and for the economy as a whole. If you believe that we've seen the worst of this and we're not going to go back into those severe lockdown restrictions, his view is probably more likely. According to government policy, as it is at the moment for this new public media entity, TVNZ itself would kind of cease to exist by 2023. Uh, so you said in the statement TVNZ will 
preserve the core capabilities required to support the government's future public media objectives. So are there, what are the core things that you need to retain because you think, well, much as we might like to do this to save costs and uh, you know, boost the commercial nature of our business, we better not do that because the government might need it for some future public media entity. Well, I think the thing that is, is most valued by the government for its public media aspirations would be local content. Um, so that's both the news content and also the local entertainment content, um, which also supports the local production environment in terms of employment and jobs and keeping people in the creative sector. So there's that side of it. There's also... Um, some infrastructure capability that we've got in terms of the distribution and the production of content. You know, when you start looking at cutting costs, what we've been guided to do is to cut costs in areas that wouldn't inhibit the future public media objectives. Well, Kevin, when we spoke about this time last year, um, at that point the government had effectively given you the signal you you don't need to provide a dividend, put it back into production. And at that time you said one of the things we, the public can expect for this foregone dividend would be a big ramping up of local content. Um, one analysis of, of your results this week described a, a $4 million increased investment in local content as puny. Has there been a ramping up of the local content? Yeah, I think um, if you look at the first nine months of the year, the pre-COVID phase, there was absolutely a ramping up of that. And then we hit this bar called COVID, which has dramatically impacted supply of content and production capability. But, but that's only in the, so the last quarter hard. of that financial year, though, isn't it, Kevin? If you were saying, you know, August of 2019, you didn't have to provide a dividend and that would go back into what you described as a big jump in local content provision, if, if only $4 million was spent in the last year, that, that wouldn't have backed up what you were saying back then, would it? Well, what you, what you find is there's a lead time associated with when you come up, the, come up with the idea of a show, you go through pre-production, production, post-production, then you get to distribute that. You know, we started that in July of last year. You know, and we were working through that and we had quite a slate of content coming through, but you're not able to produce in a you know, restrictive lockdown environment. And what's more, we needed to cut costs to ensure the commercial sustainability of the business. And one of our single biggest, or in fact, our single biggest cost is content. So we did stomp on the brakes and we pulled that back. Uh, even before the COVID crisis, Kevin, you, and you weren't alone in this, um, were saying that we needed consolidation, although it was inevitable across the media industry, too many companies chasing uh, a finite uh, local audience. As yet, in the post-COVID times, it's just been the um, the Bauer Media magazine company that's you know exited the market of established names. Do you think in the, in the next um, financial year there will be big names that, that drop out of the market, as you were predicting, and indeed um, you seem to think would, would be a good thing? Across the sector, there's a number of players that are surviving. There's very few that I'd say that are thriving. COVID has just accelerated those. Um, you know, there needs to be some resolution of that. And and I would compare and contrast what's happening in the New Zealand marketplace versus the Australian one. In Australia, the regulatory environment has actually encouraged and facilitated market consolidation. In New Zealand, we've we've had decisions that have come through the Commerce Commission that have actually inhibited them. In Australia, what you've got is the government advancing legislation to level the playing field between the global digital players and the local players, particularly the news media. I'd say something still has to give. The Chief Executive of TVNZ, Kevin Kenrick.
even New Zealand. You see what's going on in New Zealand. They beat it. They beat it. It was like front page. They beat it because they wanted to show me something. The problem is big surge in New Zealand. So, you know, it's, uh, it's terrible. We don't want that. Now, it was hardly a surprise that when Donald Trump said that last week and more about New Zealand, it ended up in our headlines. And at that time, CNN put Donald's drivel in context by running the numbers like this. New Zealand has reported about 1,300 cases since the pandemic began. The US is approaching 5.5 million. But none of that, though, was likely to influence big-time tweeter Donald Trump, who had, of course, only singled out New Zealand in the first place for his own electioneering purposes. And online misinformation certainly played a part in his election win back in 2016, with a little help from Russia. Now, last weekend, Stuff's election podcast, Tick Tick, took a look at possible offshore influences on our election, noting that the GCSB and the SIS had both said in recent months this was something to keep an eye on. And University of Otago International Relations professor Robert Patman told Tick Tick New Zealand could well be a tempting target for international interference. I think we should be on guard against the interference or intrusion into our election of foreign actors through their involvement in the social media and their involvement with, you know, domestic actors here. I I don't think there's any need for domestic actors to get the help of overseas players to help in our election. Now, by domestic actors, Professor Patman wasn't talking about Shortland Street, but real players in our politics, and some of those have already made news by hooking up with foreign influencers. Let June the 23rd go down in our history as our Independence Day. Banks's millions helped get Brexit across the line. Nigel Farage, their frontman, but the true conductors were Banksy and Wiggy, their nicknames, pulling the strings and writing the checks behind the scenes. That was News Hub's Lloyd Burr recently talking about the self-described bad boys of Brexit in the UK, British multi-millionaires Andy Wigmore and Aaron Banks, who told Lloyd Burr that they wanted to give us Winston on steroids in the election campaign and that the New Zealand First Party was keen for their help. He is actually hiring you. Is he paying you to come and help? There's a contract between us uh, that's uh, no doubt with the Electoral Commission or whatever, or, or Gus Body will be released in due course. But the media play a role in this too. As an example, men of means in the UK are also now backing another cause which involves us, the idea of a post-Brexit alliance linking the UK with former colonies Australia, Canada and New Zealand, or Kanzuk for short. Earlier this month, for example, the Wall Street Journal and Rupert Murdoch's paper The Australian both published a long piece by the conservative British historian Andrew Roberts, who said this. A second Anglospheric superpower would mean that the political values we share will be better defended and promoted, and a flourishing Kanzuk would be a fine neighbour and trading and defence partner for the US. And prominent think tanks such as the Adam Smith Institute and the Henry Jackson Society have also backed up this Kanzuk idea. While politicians and political parties are well known to the public, the institutions and think tanks which push forward ideas like this in the media these days are not. And that's the subject of Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics, a new book by the news editor of the UK-based online news service Open Democracy, Peter Gagan. You can use social media, you can kind of create kind of astroturf groups on social media and then they can feed into traditional media. Because, But I don't think for a lot of these groups... 
social media itself is enough. And especially for people like funders, you know, if you think about a lot of these groups are, they don't require huge amounts of money. In British politics, if you gave a think tank, you know, £100,000, they'll write a few reports for you. Like it's not huge sums in, the gra- in British politics, but a lot of these kind of funders want to see their message, not just on social media. They also want to see it on traditional broadcast media from campaigns that really have no, it's impossible to know who they are and don't have to declare their donors. So what's interesting about that is that social media can play a role in terms of putting out some messages, but traditional media is also important for amplifying them. Recently, these, uh, I guess it's a post-Brexit thing, but these efforts to revive what's been called the Anglosphere, it hasn't been much covered in the media here. I see this is a thing in the UK and overseas. Is this got some sort of lobbying push behind it? Oh, yes, it's very, the Kanzak idea is, is part of almost the Brexit process. It's quite fascinating how it's very, it's very many of the same people who are involved in these right-wing think tanks I'm talking about who've pushed this idea of Kanzak too. So there was actually was a Kanzak International set up uh, as a company. And one of the main p- people talking about Kanzak in Britain is a guy called Andrew Lillico, who used to work at the Institute of Economic Affairs for many years. And so it's the same kind of individuals pushing these kind of ideas. But the media is actually really important with this because a lot of these kind of commentators, even though they're quite fringe and the idea doesn't have much traction, it's not really ever been talked about that much within or everyday discussions in Britain. But in the pages of newspapers and amongst the kind of people who consume the policy papers of right-wing think tanks, it has been an idea. Interestingly, no one ever really asks how interested the other potential members of Kanzak are in this. So it's it's kind of, I'm, I'm curious to find out what, it, what the, the take in New Zealand is on it. We only notice it when it, it flares up. When people, oh, look, look what the Wall Street Journal has published. Oh, look at this in the Australian. So that's where I guess the media cut through uh, really does work. But on the same theme, two pieces heavily critical of New Zealand's COVID management and our Prime Minister. One in The Spectator, you know, in print since 1828, but also this online outlet Spiked. Originally the magazine of the British Revolutionary Communist Party, now an online outlet funded by the Charles Koch Foundation, <laughs> among others, uh, seems an extraordinary transition. Is this an example of, you know, dark money at play? What you're talking about here is, yes, a group called the Revolutionary Communist Party in the kind of 80s onwards in Britain, very much, you know, kind of a fringe group in British politics, pro Slobodan Milosevic, pro, pro the Bosnian Serbs, pro Saddam Hussein, you know, not, kind of, you know, not exactly a mainstream outfit. But over the last 20 years, they kind of morphed into this organization Spiked, which is kind of like professional contrarianism, basically. They're kind of in favor of smoking in pubs, against skeptical of climate change, pro-business, a very strange kind of mix of, uh, mix of issues. Again, like the think tanks, they've taken advantage, I think, of the kind of boom in 24-7 news, the need for controversial personalities on radio and television. So a lot of spiked contributors who are members of the Revolutionary Communist Party have now become uh, kind of ubiquitous on British television. Again, it's small amounts of money from we don't know where. They've had funding from the Koch brothers, we do know that, are able to kind of push and change the political conversation in Britain in ways that I find is, is really striking. And even when it came to covid while most of the British media kind of realised this was a big deal and was very important, the Spectator, the Telegraph newspaper and Spike have all been really kind of pushing the kind of, well, this isn't as big a deal. We should follow Sweden. The Swedish model was a big thing for a few months here. And it just shows, I think, how 
a very small number of very purposeful people and very purposeful groups are able to really change a political conversation massively with a little bit of money, a little bit of dark money and a lot of influence and a lot of knowledge about how the system works. A mix of the digital age and money and lobbying has allowed these kind of fringe groups to take over a lot of political conversation in ways that's really hard for us on the outside to understand. And so with that in mind, Peter, I mean, what do you think mainstream media outlets should do to counter or acknowledge or even, you know, kind of confront politically funded think tanks and lobbying? The first thing you could do is like not have people on political programs unless they say where their their funders actually come from. We don't know whose interest they're representing when they're speaking. I think there's a wider thing, too, about how we treat debate. Like, do we treat debate as getting two extreme positions and that being the way we discuss something? And that's been the way it's gone in Britain for a very long time. So, you know, late night um, political talk shows on radio and television, debate has been two often shrill positions from the diametrically opposite sides of the political spectrum. In that world, this kind of influence works really well. We have this uh, surprise story popping up here while our election campaign was just getting underway that the New Zealand First Party, part of our governing coalition, uh, has formed some sort of relationship with the so-called bad boys of Brexit, Aaron Banks, Andy Wigmore. Do you think they really would be interested in influencing the outcome of an, an election here? Well, if you look at the history of Aaron Banks in Britain, he's been quite good at working with small political organisations to change the weather, the political weather here in huge ways. When the Brexit referendum was called, he became probably the biggest single donor to a political campaign in British election history. So this was a guy who had an insurance business, was not known in politics at all. Not particularly, it's not particularly clear how much money he had or what he had the amount of money he claimed to have. But lo and behold, he was donating millions and millions of pounds to the political campaign. And it was his own campaign. It was called Leave.eu. And what Leave.eu did during the Brexit referendum was it really pushed a very hard line on immigration and race and was kind of during the campaign, it tapped into voters' fears and concerns about kind of the country around them, shall we say. I spent a lot of time researching about Aaron Banks for my book. So the kind of guy. So if they really wanted to mess around with New Zealand politics, though, why would they be appearing on our TV screens, you know, giving uh, interviews to one of our major TV channels here? Well, he has a track record of getting involved in other in other political uh, arenas. Um, I did some work showing that he'd actually he'd been involved in Lesotho politics, would you believe? Here in Britain, he's definitely played a role in terms of changing the politics of Britain. His Leave.eu campaign, you know, was very successful. Britain voted to leave the European Union. It's not quite Aaron Banks' world, but he's definitely helped to shape it. And while all this is, uh, I guess, contemporary and related to digital technology and new platforms like Facebook and so on, I mean, you referenced the uh, Institute of Economic Affairs, um, perhaps uh, one of the original think tanks, if I might call it that. But that goes all the way back to, I think, the what, the 1950s or maybe early 60s, a long, long time. So less and less are the IAs this world coming up with some monetarist blueprint for the future. And more and more, they're pushing specific policies, whether that's Brexit, whether that's abolishing Public Health England, that seems to be increasingly the role of of these kind of think tanks, and which is, I think is one of the reasons why corporate interests are very keen to fund them, because if you have a specific niche interest, these guys are exactly the kind of people who can put it on the political agenda. That was Peter Gagan, news editor of the UK-based online news service Open Democracy, and the author of the new book, Democracy for Sale, Dark Money and Dirty Politics.
And finally on Media Watch this weekend, late on the Friday before last, the New Zealand Herald reported on what it called a proposal for the government to buy a 50% stake in the ports of Auckland from Auckland Council. Now the story said that a four-page draft proposal had been released to the Herald, which said that the city was losing $65 million a day and the sale would be, quote, a win for Auckland and a win for New Zealand. But that was according to the author, Auckland councillor Chris Darby. But a spokesperson from the Mayor's office told the Herald in that story it was the first he knew and he wasn't in favour of it, likewise the Deputy Mayor. And on Tuesday, the Herald reported that he had in fact apologised to the Mayor and other councillors for not making it clear that this proposal was just a personal view. My intention was to generate public-facing discussion about how we might resolve our dire financial position. But Councillor Darby certainly got some public-facing comment from Mike Hosking at the Herald's sister station News Talk ZB last Monday morning. Though Mike Hosking made it sound like actual council policy. This is how dire things are in the country's engine room, economic engine room. They've written to the government, they said, please can you buy 50% of the ports of Auckland? I mean, how insane is that? And Mike Hosking went on to read from Councillor Darby's proposal in the Herald story as if it was an actual deal on the table. They want the government to buy 50% of the ports of Auckland. Four-page draft letter outlines time is of the essence. Auckland is losing $65 million a day. Right here, right now, lockdown two. $65 million a day. And after that, Mike Hosking went on to give his ZB listeners the impression that all this was only the tip of some kind of communist iceberg. The government's going to end up owning everything. By the time you deal with New Zealand refining, Glenbrook, TY, Auckland Ports, Air New Zealand, the government's going to own everything. What do they call that? See if you can think of a word where the government owns everything in the country and see what word you come up with. Well, the government, of course, already owns half of Air New Zealand, and if Mike Hosking knows of plans to nationalise New Zealand Steel, the TY Point Smelter and the Marsden Point Refinery, he really ought to tell the Herald in the ZB newsroom. But Mike Hosking was able to reassure his listeners that the state would only get its hands on News Talk ZB from his cold, dead hands. They will never own us. No, they will not own us. Uh, Mike Hosking didn't mention any of that when he interviewed the Prime Minister last Tuesday, though he did ask her this. OK, I'll check with Judith Collins shortly. Are you looking at buying a chunk of Auckland Port? Uh, uh, Apropos of what there, Mike? Because they're out of money and they've written to you four-page letter asking for it. Well, as we heard, Ports of Auckland didn't write to the government offering half of itself for sale. One councillor wrote that in a proposal which it gave to the Herald in the hope of a headline or two. And having struck out on the government buying the Ports of Auckland from Auckland Council, Mike Hosking asked if it was taking over other councils. Do you look to take over in some way, shape or form either the Tauranga City Council or the Invercargill City Council? Why on earth are you making such suggestions? Because the department has written to both of the councils looking for information that they may involve the role of the minister in them. Uh, and you're suddenly making an assumption that we're going to take over... Well, that's one of the outworkings the of the information they received from the letter they sent to them. So what was that all about? The department, Mike Hosking referred to there, was the Department of Internal Affairs. It has requested information from both councils where, as has been much reported in the media, some councillors are at loggerheads with their mayors. Now, both councils have said they will write back, and the Department of Internal Affairs can then advise the Minister of Local Government if there's any action she needs to take under the Local Government Act regulations, which allow for the Minister to intervene 
if the running of council's local operations are disrupted. Now, judging by the Prime Minister's response, the takeover of local government by central government is not actually on the cards just yet. A bit like buyouts of the ports of Auckland, Marston Point, TY Point and the steel mill at Glenbrook. But we can rest assured, I guess, that Mike Hosking will certainly be on the case as soon as someone somewhere writes a letter to someone official which even hints at the possibility. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but the Media Watch team will be back with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show. And then we'll be back again with more Media Watch at the same time next Sunday, here on RNZ National.